Let me welcome you to the series on cloning. It's here. Do we want it? Cloning is at the same time probably one of the most confusing to get hold of in both its technical and ethical aspects. Therefore, the Public Lectures Committee thought it would be worthwhile as a public service, more or less, to design a three-part series, the first part of which would be a lecture on the present technical realities and future prospects of cloning. Um, that's the night. The second will be on some of the ethical dilemmas that infuse the subject with its passion. The third will be a concluding panel discussion chaired by President Hale Shapiro, in which experts on various aspects of the subject will present their views and engage with each other and with you, the audience, on issues of general interest. Let me remind you that that panel will be in Makash 50 rather than here. Ultimately, the presentations and discussion will be published by Princeton University Press, we hope. They are a co-sponsor of the event in an ongoing series of highly accessible and informative books on developments in contemporary science. To properly present tonight's speaker, since I myself am one of those here to learn, let me introduce Professor Shirley Tillman of the Molecular Biology Department. Professor Tillman has the honor of having participated in cloning the first mammalian gene um, in the late 1970s. She went on to do extensive work on the mechanism of expression of mammalian genes during development, working especially on mice. She was among the first to introduce clone genes into the mouse germline in order to study their properties. She is exceedingly well known both internationally and here locally. At Princeton, among her other many activities, she serves as chair of the Council on Science and Technology. Shirley. Good evening. Tonight we begin at the beginning of the cloning story. That is to say, we begin with the science of cloning. What is cloning? What led to its development and the first attempts to clone an animal like a frog, the first success of cloning an animal like a sheep, and more recent successes in the cloning of mice? I have the pleasure of introducing this evening a pioneer in the field of reproductive technologies who will initiate us into the scientific challenges that the development of cloning has presented to us. Dr. John Gordon is presently the G. Harold and Lila W. Mathers Research Professor of Geriatrics and Adult Development at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. As a young MD PhD student at Yale University in the late 1970s, Dr. Gordon was the first person to introduce DNA into the fertilized mouse egg, thereby generating a new strain of mice with new genetic properties that had never existed before. This technique, which he named transgenesis, gave the field of mammalian genetics a new and extremely powerful tool for understanding the mechanism by which genes are turned on and turned off as 
the process of development proceeds, and for understanding the function of the 50 to 100,000 genes that we know exist in the mammalian genome. Dr. Gordon joined the faculty of Mount Sinai in 1982, where he continued his studies in mice. But at the same time, he turned his attention to the problems of human infertility. In 1988, his laboratory demonstrated that fertilization could occur using sperm from infertile men if those sperm were assisted in reaching the egg using newly developed manipulative techniques. This finding led to major advances in the treatment of male infertility. Dr. Gordon has served in an advisory capacity on the subject of human reproduction for many years to organizations like the National Institutes of Health and the World Health Organization. The title of his talk tonight is Scientific and Ethical Aspects of Cloning in Animals and Humans. Please join me in welcoming John Gordon to Princeton this evening. turning this a little bit so I can see the screen also. Well, it's certainly nice to be back at Princeton. I shouldn't say this at the outset, but I'm a Columbia alumnus, so I hope that doesn't get me off on the wrong foot here at, at Princeton. <clears throat> what I'd like to do is talk about exactly what the title says, the scientific and ethical aspects of cloning in human and animals. And the way I'd like to approach it is to first describe what is the scientific principle or the scientific problem that is addressed by efforts to clone and what do we learn from cloning at the basic level? I can tell you at the outset that my bias is that this is the basic science uh, findings related to cloning that will be ultimately the most profound contribution of cloning. Next, we can talk about what we can do with cloning in an applied level for uh, agricultural livestock genetic engineering and the management of livestock for improvement of livestock productivity. And then finally, what are potential clinical uh, applications of cloning-related technologies? And I distinguish that from the cloning of human beings, which is not necessarily uh, clinically related, although it is clinical. But it is uh, certainly only one way that one can do human experiments with human material that are related to cloning. And then we'll talk a little bit about cloning of human beings, what the ethical uh, aspects one confronts in uh, attempting to extend such a technology to humans. And I'll try to show to you the significant obstacles that exist in the clinical application of cloning. And then finally, uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, ultimately what efforts uh, to restrict cloning technologies might uh, afford to us as a society. So if I could have the first slide. Now, I understand that we don't have, we have some people in the audience who are not familiar with biological lingo, but who are sophisticated people. I know that some of the world's most sophisticated biologists are in this room, surely not the least of them, and, and the, Anne McLaren and so on. But I'm going to have to make sure that we all start from the same place, so I hope they'll forgive me. Well, let's begin at the beginning here. This is the double helix of DNA, the genetic material. And instead of being shown here in a helical form, it has been flattened out so that you could see the structure a little more clearly. On the sides of this double helix is a sugar backbone. 
and the inter intervening space between these two strands are associated these bases, which we call nucleotides. Now, these, or the order of these nucleotides is what specifies genes so that a specific array of these nucleotides, when decoded in the cell, could produce the protein hormone insulin, for example, and that gene is turned on exclusively in the pancreas, in certain cells of the pancreas of the adult animal. We only have four of these subunits, and uh, they encode all of the gene products that we see in an adult that are proteinaceous in nature. We won't talk about it. It's about fats and so on today. But we consider globin genes that carry oxygen-carrying uh, oxygen protein in red cells. That is a gene that is turned on only in red cells. And albumin, one of Shirley Tillman's favorite uh, gene products, is turned on exclusively uh, in the liver. So uh, in this genome that we have in the cell, we have all of that information the information needed to produce all of these products and all these very diverse and, and highly specialized cell types. But we have more information than that. We have information not only for the specific production of all these different proteins, but also we have information for regulating these proteins so that we only turn on globin in red cells and not in the pancreas and not in the brain. We only turn on insulin in the pancreas and not in the liver. And we have still more information. We have information that tells the cell where genes begin and end. And we have information that tells the developing embryo and fetus how to make decisions in development. So for example, there is a point in development where there are cells that were set aside ultimately to become the liver or brain, but do not yet carry out those specific functions of that organ. So they've been designated or determined to carry out that function. And then later, they produce the very specific gene products that allows them to function in a specialized way. Well, that process of determination is regulated genetically. How many cells should be in your liver? One cell division too many, and your liver would be twice the size of what it is. That would be not good for you. So we have genes that regulate that. And so we have a tremendous amount of information encoded in this very simple structure. So how do we do it? Well, Princeton is a computer center, of course, and we all know about binary computers. Binary computers only use ones and zeros to give you all the information that they can possibly give you. And how do they do it? Well, they make very long arrays of ones and zeros. Here we have four different subunits, A, T, G, and C, and we have a very long array in order to give us all the information we need to create a mammal. And in fact, in a human cell, there are about three billion of these nucleotides in a row, which gives us all the information that I summarized before. Now, how much is 3 billion? Well, the physical length of the DNA in a human cell is about a meter. That is not magnified. That is a 1x magnification. And a single human being has about 100 million miles of DNA uh, in his body. <clears throat> so that's a lot of information to be packaged in a very small place. And consider, when the adult cell is functioning, how it accesses only the information it needs so the liver cell knows not to turn on insulin, not to turn on globin, not to turn on neuron-specific proteins, but only to turn on its own proteins, plus the proteins it needs just to keep alive, its so-called housekeeping proteins, and leave all of the other genes silent. That is a tremendous task to be conducted in a data bank that is stored in a fantastically small compartment, and yet we do it beautifully and successfully most of the time. It shouldn't surprise you thinking about that, though, when, when mistakes are made, they can have drastic effects. Now, if we look at the step of 
conception, the moment of fertilization, this is a mouse oocyte. And here, this little sphere with the little ball inside it, that contains all the genes imparted to the next generation from the female parent. And this other larger sphere with the little smaller structures inside is all of the genes imparted from the male parent. At this stage, the one-celled fertilized egg, in this case it's a mouse egg, just by logic we understand, must be able to potentially engage in every possible gene regulatory function. It must at some point in its further development be able to determine all of the cell lines. It must be able to instruct those cells to carry out their differentiated functions. It must instruct in some cases cells to die. So for example, when you were a fetus, you may have had a webbed hand and now you have digits because of cell death in between those digits. That is genetically programmed as well. So by the, by the force of logic, we know that this cell is an open book with regard to its potential for gene regulation. It can do everything. Now, as the cell divides, what it does is instead of parceling out liver genes only to the cells that will become liver and just throwing the other genes out and imparting globin genes to red cells and then throwing the other genes out, what the cell does is it's very conservative. It gives all the genes to every cell in as perfect copies as it can possibly make them, and then it asks the cell to select the information it wants in order to carry out its differentiated function. That means that all three billion nucleotides have to be copied before each cell division. They're copied perfectly, or as perfectly as a cell can do, which is pretty good, and that occurs at a rate of about uh, 10 million bases per minute for about a nine-hour period. So it replicates twice, and here is a human four-celled embryo where we have four individual cells now versus about 36 hours after the moment of conception. In this structure, we can ask now, is gene function becoming restricted? Are some of these cells being told, well, you're going to go down the road of becoming internal organs like liver and spleen, and here you are going to be the brain, and there you are going to be skin, and so on. We know that is not true, and how do we know that? If we take this cell embryo and we separate the cells individually, so we have four separate uh, embryo cells, and we implant them individually into carrier mothers, we will get identical quadruplets. So we know that the full genetic potential is present in these, at this stage of development, and so it is the, the same from that point of view as the one-celled embryo. Now here is a human cell stage of about 16 to 30, a so-called morula, and this is a solid ball with multiple cells. At this stage, it's a little bit harder to prove that every cell has the full developmental potential, the full potential for gene programming, but experiments have been done in the mouse which basically demonstrate that a very large percentage, if not all of these cells, still can engage in all differentiated functions throughout development. And I won't go into the details of those experiments, but suffice it to say that that's true. However, at this stage, we begin to approach the very first steps in cell differentiation and cell specialization. The outside cells in this ball are much more likely to contribute to extra embryonic structures like the amniotic sac or placental structures. And the inside cells in the ball are much more likely to be gone to become the embryo proper, the thing which is delivered that we deal with later as a child. Now here is the next stage beyond that the so-called blastocyst stage. The blastocyst is a hollow ball. This is a fluid-filled cavity, and on the outside of this cavity are cells which will contribute 
to extra embryonic structures that will support development of the embryo but will be lost at the time of delivery. Inside this bulge of cells on one end is the cells of what's called the inner cell mass, and those cells will become the entire embryo and fetus. And so those cells, again, must have the, the potential to produce every possible differentiated cell type. Now, let's think about the tree of development then. Here, these cells have become restricted in their function. They no longer can turn on albumin. They no longer can turn on insulin. But there are cells in here that still have that potential. And so we've taken a branch in the path. And if we think about this development as a gigantic tree where we're constantly getting into smaller and smaller branches with finer and finer functions designated for each cell line or cell lineage, we can understand gene, the gene expression of development as a process of progressive gene silencing, basically. What we're doing is we become closer and closer to being a liver cell is we start prohibiting more and more genes from being turned on. At some point, we prohibit the insulin gene from ever turning on again because we don't want to turn on insulin in the liver. And as we approach the point of being a red cell progenitor, we turn off albumin, we turn off insulin, and we keep as open for potential utilization the globin gene. So in a very real sense, you could look at mammalian development as a process of progressive gene silencing. Gene silencing, therefore, is critical to normal development. And there are many disease states in which gene silencing is not properly maintained. And they are associated with disastrous disease states. An example very well known to Shirley Tellman, I'm sure, is liver cancer. It's very common in liver cancer for a fetal gene of the liver, alpha fetoprotein, the gene that she first became very best known for her work in. The alpha fetoprotein gene is a fetal gene of the, of the fetal liver and is off in adults. But when one gets liver cancer, these cancer cells, which arise from adult liver, suddenly find themselves expressing this fetal gene again. It's a mistake. That gene was supposed to be silent, but it is no longer silent. And so this improper silencing is associated with a devastating and fatal disease, hepatocellular carcinoma. And there are other examples of that. Sometimes cells don't remember what differentiated type they are. For example, some types of lung cancers will make genes that are normally only on in the adrenal gland. And the person will first present to the doctor because they have too many adrenal hormones in their bloodstream and they're suffering effects of that. You take a closer look and you find they have lung cancer. So the lung cancer cells have forgotten what they're supposed, that they should have kept those adrenal genes quiet. So gene silencing is critical to normal development and maintenance of function. And so naturally, in evolution, there's a strong pressure to keep them off. Now, the question that comes up to biologists then is, well, if we're copying the genetic material perfectly with each cell division, and every adult cell has every gene, but most of them are off, can we formally demonstrate that those genes can be pro properly reactivated and reprogrammed to exert all of their normal functions once again? And the only way to do that experiment is to get the adult cell nucleus to go back through all of development again, because only in that process can all of those genes be reactivated again and orchestrated again. And that is the basis and strategic rationale for trying to clone. You take an adult cell that you think has every gene, you put it back in the fertilized egg, and you watch that egg, and you see if it will develop to become a new adult. If it does, then you know that the cell of origin still has the full genetic potential, even though most genes are off. And as was alluded to briefly by Shirley in her introductory remarks, 
Tremendous efforts have been made over the past many decades to show this in frogs. Frog is an easy species to manipulate. The eggs are very large. You can put cells back or nuclei from adult cells back to the frog egg and try to see what happens. And pioneering researchers in, in the United Kingdom worked on this for many, many years and found that it was possible to get reconstituted frog eggs in which there, the egg genes were removed, an adult cell nucleus was put in, and development was observed. It was possible to get tadpoles from that using adult cells as the origin of their genetic material after a very, very exhaustive labor. And so it was thought that it at least demonstrates in principle that you have put some potential there. Uh, but these experiments were never fully satisfied. Then suddenly, and I would say from my own point of view, I don't know what the other people who follow the literature in this room would say, but for me, suddenly, Dolly the sheep was cloned from an adult, uh, from an adult uh, ewe uh, breast gland cell. And that experiment, going all the way to mammals, and I must say that earlier experiments with mice were, were disastrously ineffective, showed that not only was cloning possible, but demonstrated this biological principle, this critical biological principle. And I say once again that I still think that is the single most important contribution that cloning will make. Now, cloning, how is it done? You retrieve cells. This is for sheep now. You retrieve cells from an adult. You culture the cells in serum-deprived medium. Most cells like to grow in serum, like you know, blood components from fetal calves. You recover, but if you deprive them of serum, they divide very slowly and get quiet, and that seems to help in cloning. You recover the unfertilized eggs from a donor female and remove their own metaphase chromosomes. That's their own genetic material. We don't want the egg to have its own genetic contribution. We want the donor cells to contribute. You then insert the nucleus from these adult cells into the, to the egg by electrofusion, which means you give the egg an electrical shock. That shock also initiates the process of, of embryo development. If the embryo develops, the oocyte develops, which is another word for egg, you transfer that into the uterus and you wait and see what happens. That's basically how it occurs. Now in mice, this has been done slightly differently. Now you may notice up here, I say perform gene transfer if desired into the cells that you retrieve from the adult. And we'll get back to that issue in a moment. This is just a micro-manipulation microscope from which you do such manipulations. This is a uh, device for holding oocytes so that you can remove their genetic material and then put back a nucleus of another cell. This shaft of glass here is a little bit thinner than a human hair. This one happens to be being prepared for uh, injecting new genes. is even smaller than that. And here, here is an egg still in the ovary. And the reason I show you this is because the stain shows you that the egg's genetic material. When you do cloning on, a, on an unfertilized egg in a microscope like I just showed you, you cannot see this material. You have to take it out by more or less knowing where it's supposed to be. But I wanted you to see in the stain that it is, uh, it is uh, here. These cells that surround the egg are, this, are specialized for supporting oocyte development. And it is these cells that were used to clone mice, nuclei from those. Here is an unfertilized egg, which is being held now by that hair-thin holding pipette. And you see it now. It is exerting suction and holding the egg in place. Here is a needle, which we are, in fact, getting ready to do another procedure. But it just shows you the, the dimensions of it. This is a residual body that the, it appears after, after uh, ovulation of the egg from the ovary. It contains a full set of genes, but it never contributes to the embryo. And the actual genes of this egg are underneath that. And what you need to do in cloning is get those genes out 
So you pretty much know where they are and you, you go for them by their position. And you use a procedure that looks a little bit like this. You can see we're sucking out this little spheroid of cytoplasm surrounded by membrane. And if we keep tugging, this membrane will pinch off and seal itself off. And we can have inside of here all of the genetic material of the egg. Now it's without any genes and we can take the genes of an adult cell and put them in. Now cloning the major achievement, therefore, is that cell differentiation is a process of gene silencing. Cloning demonstrates that silent genes can be reactivated and expressed with appropriate developmental regulation. That is a major principle of developmental biology that has been demonstrated by cloning. Now this is a slide that I took from my postdoctoral fellowship and Shirley alluded to, which describes injecting genes into the embryo to add new genes. What you do in this case is you take the fertilized egg. You remember that slide I showed you with the male and female genetic compartments? This is a little cartoon of that. You inject some genes into one of those compartments. You, if the egg survives, the embryo survives, you implant to a carrier female. She delivers pups, and the pups may have these new genes. And the reason I'm showing you this gene transfer method of actually getting, for example, a human gene into a mouse or a plant gene into a mouse is because one of the major applications of cloning is to get genes into livestock more efficiently than by this method. If you try to use this method to inject genes into sheep, and I'll explain why you'd want to do that in a moment, it's very inefficient. But if in cloning, suppose we retrieved cells from a sheep and we put genes into those cells first, then every cell that we used as a donor cell for cloning would already have the genes in it, and, we, and the next animal that was produced after a nuclear transfer would certainly have the genes in it. And so cloning has the potential to do this process more efficiently than embryo injection. And I'll now explain why we want to do it. Here is a slide which any uh, intelligent person can see lists the possible ways in which differential gene function might transpire. So for example, how do we make sure that globin is only on in red cells? How do we make sure it's not on in the pancreas? How do we make sure insulin is on only in the pancreas? Well, it could be that genes have in them, or very close to them, elements which we would call cis-actin, because they're very they're next to the gene, that would regulate tissue specificity of gene expression. That gene would open up the chromosomal material around it, which is the proteinaceous repository for genes, and allow the gene to be open for expression. Those could be tissue-specific, and they could be in genes. There could be factors that are move over to genes from other gene products and turn them on. And where genes are located in the chromosome may be important for gene regulation. Now, I can't go into the nuances of all of this right in this hour. But suffice it to say that in a single experiment with gene injection, as it was shown in the previous slide, a couple of scientists, Ralph Brinster and Richard Palmiter, showed that fundamentally genes are regulated by cis-acting elements. So let me show you what I can do. I can take the human insulin gene, purify it away from the, all the other human genes, microinject it into a mouse embryo, get a mouse born that has the human insulin gene integrated randomly somewhere into the mouse's genetic material. That mouse will then turn on the human insulin gene in its pancreas specifically and nowhere else. And in fact, that expression will suppress mouse insulin production because the human gene product will lower mouse blood sugar and the mouse will turn on its own insulin gene. Our, or Shirley had injected the alpha-fetoprotein gene into mice and showed that the fetal liver would express it. Or you can put globin genes into mice, human genes, and they will turn on in the mouse red cell, as they're supposed to. Now clearly, since they're integrating randomly, 
And we only have a very small fragment of DNA, no longer three billion bases, perhaps just a few thousand surrounding the gene, and yet we're getting perfect tissue specificity of expression. It must be that that, that fragment has the signals. Now, why is that important? Because we can identify where these signals are and what they are. Now, let's take an example of how we might use that knowledge. Suppose I knew the cis-acting elements that cause the pancreas to specifically express insulin. And I took those little nucleotide sequences, those little pieces of DNA from away from the insulin gene, and I put them on the globin gene using the common DNA technology. I now have a globin gene with insulin regulators on it. If I inject that into a mouse embryo, I'm likely to see the oxygen-carrying red cell protein globin expressed in the pancreas of the mouse. That's a mistake, but I've caused this mistake. I've targeted expression of globin to the pancreas by grafting regulators of the pancreas onto a globin. That's a pretty silly experiment. Why would a mouse make globin in its pancreas? It's of no use at all. But let's take a look at livestock production for a moment, and let's consider the case of the hapless individual with hemophilia. Hemophiliacs lack clotting factors, and they bleed into their joints. When I was a medical intern, I used to have to give clotting factors to bleeding hemophiliacs. Where did we get those clotting factors? We purified them from human blood donors. When I used to prepare this material to give to patients, the label on the bottle would say, this has hepatitis B in it. We guarantee it. And there's a very strong possibility that it has HIV in it. Now, since that time, a lot of those problems have been solved for donor uh, clotting factors and other serum factors, but I used to give that material to patients, and they used to inject that into themselves five, five times a day to stop their joints from bleeding. They were giving themselves these diseases, and they knew it, but they had no choice because there was no other efficient way to produce these clotting factors other than to obtain them from human donors. Now let's take a look at what we might do with transgenic technology. Sheep, cows, goats, humans, they make proteins that are secreted from the body and readily accessible. The best example is milk proteins from a female who's lactating. Whey is a milk protein, and the regulators of those of whey, whey acidic protein, target expression of the whey acidic protein gene to the breast, just in the same way that insulin elements target expression to the pancreas. Now suppose I made a sheep that had clotting factor genes, of clotting factors that a hemophiliac needed, but they carried the targeting sequences of whey acidic protein, and I made a sheep, a transgenic sheep. We could now anticipate that this sheep would produce in its milk human clotting factors, because the gene would be targeted to express there. And all I had to do now to cure a hemophiliac is go out to the barn and milk it. I don't have to go to 5,000 human blood donors, some of whom have hepatitis B, some of whom have HIV, and go through an exhaustive process of purification at tremendous expense, only to make my patient yet have another disease. Now, it's been calculated that if you could express human clotting factor 8, which is the hemophilia A gene, with the same efficiency in a goat milk gland as the goat expresses its own whey acidic protein in there, by putting goat whey acidic protein regulators on factor eight, that one goat could be produce enough factor eight to treat every hemophiliac in this country. If that wasn't enough, though, that's not a problem. These animals transmit the gene through the germline, so we can breed up a herd of goats. If we need to go to two goats, does that so bad? 
three goats? Is that what it takes to cure hemophilia? That's not so terrible. And in fact, we could have a little herd of these goats in every state. Now the problem with factor eight has been solved largely, but factor nine is another clotting deficiency which causes hemophilia-like disease. And one of the main reasons that the dolly, sheep dolly was cloned was because people wanted to put whey acidic protein, factor nine, hybrid genes, into cultured cells from an adult sheep, make sure they were in there and getting expressed, and then use the adult cell to clone a new sheep to be sure that that new sheep was transgenic and would be able to make factor nine in its milk. So that's why we're interested in gene transfer. Applications of cloning. Understanding faulty gene regulation. Remember I said that liver cancer will turn on alpha fetoprotein. Colon cancer will turn on carcinoembryonic antigen. Lung cancers will turn on adrenal corticosteroid hormones, genes. If we can recapitulate embryonic development experimentally through cloning, we can dissect that process and learn a little bit more about what goes wrong when it does go wrong. And that has tremendous implications for our fundamental understanding of development, and as I said at dinner, I think that's a valuable ND in and of itself, even if it doesn't lead you a cure for anything. But we can also perhaps understand errors in gene regulation that bring about disastrous birth defects, malignancy, maybe even aging, although aging is a very complicated process. We could also develop new human cell lines if we applied it to humans. Now let me give you an example of this. Let's take a leukemia patient who needs a bone marrow transplant. That's what happens in leukemia often. And we can't find a compatible donor because, of course, you have tissue rejection problems when you do bone marrow transplantation. Well, suppose across the street in the in vitro fertilization clinic, a woman had an egg exposed to sperm, but it did not get fertilized, and it was going to be thrown away. We can take it back across the street to the leukemia center, remove its nuclear material, the egg, through suction like I showed, and take a cell from that leukemia patient, which is not malignant, let's say from his skin, or her skin, I better say her, since only female animals have been cloned so far, put the nucleus back into that unfertilized egg and start an embryo developing. Now that would get a lot of people ethically concerned if we ended up with a fetus that we harvested bone marrow from and then tossed out the fetus, of course. But we can stop short of that. We can steer this cell line down the pathway to bone marrow cell differentiation and produce a tissue culture line of bone marrow cells which can provide this patient with an unlimited supply of a cell that he needs to live. So by having it would be a perfectly compatible donor cell line because it would have the donor's genes in it from cloning. And so we can create new human cell lines that could have tremendous value. Consider if we could steer them down the pathway to heart myocardial cell differentiation. And prior to putting them, pasting them onto somebody's heart who has heart disease, we put in genes that stimulate new vascular growth into that region of the heart. We cause new vascularization of, of the heart and reduction of, heart, uh, of uh, ischemic heart disease, which is heart disease related to low blood supply. So we can do gene therapy by putting genes into cells and then using them. And we can do, develop valuable cell lines and we can use cells for transplantation. So there are tremendous potentials, clinical potentials, if we truly understand the cloning process. Now, we'll start thinking about extending cloning to humans, meaning making a human. I was talking about making cell lines, and I don't think anybody has a lot of misgivings about that, although clearly there could be debate. But if we talk about making a new human being, baby, we have to start looking at how easy this is to do because it impacts very significantly on medical ethics. Let's take a look at sheep. 
When 434 eggs were fused to donor nuclei, 277 of them were successful. That is, the nucleus went in and development began. That's 63% of this 434. Of those that began development, 247 were made in, um, into embryos that you might want to transfer and began development, like to the four-cell stage. Of those 277, though, only 29 reached the morula to blastocyst stage, the stage you get right before uterine implantation, which I showed earlier, the hollow ball. That's only 11% of the 277. One pregnancy was established from these 29 embryos when they were replaced in 13 sheep. So 13 sheep carrying 29 embryos, that's somewhere between two and three embryos per sheep. That's 0.4% of electrofusion success, and one lamb was born, 0.4%. Now, already I hope you can see emerging a problem in offering a medical procedure in humans that has a 0.4% success rate, especially if there are other options. The efficiency of mouse cloning. Mice have recently been cloned in a spectacular paper, I believe, in nature, but it is also terribly inefficient. Total number of eggs injected with nuclei to begin the development process of cloning, 2,810. The number of embryos that developed, 1,527. That's about 54%. The number of newborns, 31 out of 1,385 transferred, and that's only 2.2%. If you clone a mouse successfully and you use its cells to do cloning again, you only have a 2.8% success. So it doesn't make it easier to do just because you did it once. You haven't conditioned the cells. That's a very, very low success rate. Now, why does it fail? Plenty of things can fail and no harm done. For example, if I take a couple through in vitro fertilization and I transfer an embryo and the woman doesn't get pregnant, well, there's harm done. She'll suffer emotionally, but her health will not be at risk. Let's take a look at why cloning fails. Late fetal loss in mouth cloning. In a subset of those embryos transferred, 800 into 54 mice, the number of fetuses were delivered late uh, in gestation by cesarean section. And for discussing human clinical cloning, I'm going to make the assumption that we can do it just as easily as in mice without any further experimentation. Obviously, that may not be true, but optimistically, we'll say we can do it without changing the experimental conditions at all. When 17 pups were delivered by cesarean section after cloning in mice, seven of those died in the immediate postnatal period. That is a 41% death rate of the, ne of the neonate. Now, I can tell you right now, having practiced reproductive medicine, that women don't get off on seeing their baby die while they're, while they're nursing. They don't get off on seeing it die a week after they're nursing. And if 41% of them have to see that, you're dealing with an un unacceptable procedure. And I can tell you that it's going to be financially unacceptable to your malpractice insurance carrier. Because let us consider the consent form that the patient signs. You present them a consent form and you say, well, yes, we're going to clone you, but we warn you, and we'd like you to sign a paper saying we understand this one, that if the baby's born, it has a 41% chance of being dead. <laughs> And the patient says, well, gee, you know, that's, that's pretty bad, but I do understand what 41% is, so I'll sign the form. So they sign the form. They go through pregnancy, the baby is delivered and dies. And the parent turns around and sues the doctor and says, well, it's true. I signed the consent form, and I understood the numbers you gave me, but I didn't understand what you said you like to watch my baby die in the crib. Because I've never been pregnant. I've never seen my own baby. And I don't feel the same. If I thought I would fail, 
when I signed the form. And I can tell you now that if I was on that jury, I would be sympathetic to that argument. And historically, juries that dealing with litigation of reproductive medicine are very sympathetic to distraught parents. Problems with cloning and cheap. Low efficiency, as I described, 0.4%. Late pregnancy loss. In sheep, when 21 fetuses were seen on day 50 to 60, including those established from fetal and embryo donor cells, we don't have to worry about that, 62% of them were lost. Four were found dead at 110 days of sheep gestation. Sheep gestation is about 150 days. And a normal loss rate in sheep is 6%. And here we're looking at a 62% fetal loss rate. Now, we're not talking about the sheep failing to get pregnant and throwing up its wool and saying, oh, gee, I'll try again someday. We're looking at a sheep who got pregnant and who miscarried late in pregnancy. If this is the type of thing we're going to see in the human, we're going to see late pregnancy loss, which can be life-threatening to the mother if she has a tremendous bleed, and it can be tremendously emotionally stressful. We cannot tolerate that type of success rate and offer this type of procedure to a human being. I just want to say quickly that don't forget all of these numbers are on the assumption that the technology as it's, we understand it today for sheep and mice could be just moved straight to humans without any loss of success rate. But remember, we may find out after thousands of embryos of experimentation that humans need a slightly different composition of their culture. We don't know that. We're going to make the optimistic assumption that all of that stuff, we don't have to do any experiments on that. So late pregnancy loss, however, also indicates incomplete genomic reprogramming. So I think what we're seeing here is that if we put the nucleus in and the embryo begins to develop, and we look at a four-celled embryo, it looks great. We look at an eight-celled embryo, it looks great. We look at a morinoblastasis, it looks perfectly normal. But what are we measuring? We're measuring how it looks to us. That is a very crude method of measuring. We don't know what it's doing genetically. It may be doing just enough to look okay to us, but not enough to carry out the late developmental processes that it must do. Now let's keep in mind something about humans in that context. The human brain is a late developing organ. Few animal models exist for late human developmental events. How late developing organ is the human brain? Any of you who had a baby or who were a baby know that a newborn human baby is intellectually about the equivalent of a salad. They don't really have any neocortical function because your higher cortex, the insulation for the nerve connections to those neurons is not completed. And so their neuronal cortex does not function. And in fact, if a baby is born with a normal skull, but just fluid in its head instead of a brain, it often takes many weeks before it can be seen by the doctor because it doesn't look any different from the baby that has a normal head. Because they're not using it. Now, interneuronal connections in humans number about 10 to the 14. That is a 1, or 14 zeros. How big a number is that? Well, if we assume that 90% of neocortical wiring is completed at birth, and the other 10% is completed by age 10, because a 10-year-old is coming close to having adult-level cognitive function, although it's still not complete, but close. So let's assume that 90% is done at birth, we do see a brain in there after all, and that the rest of the 10% is done in the next 10 years. At that rate, we would have to connect 100 million neurons an hour for 10 years to finish the job. So when I did that calculation, well, I bought my own kids or I had my own kids, and I did that calculation, it's obviously a lot of fudge factors in it. 
I ran over to my child and I put my ear to his head. I said, do I hear any humming or anything? I mean, you know, 100 million neurons an hour for 10 years. We don't have any models for that. Was Dolly mentally retarded? Was Dolly autistic? Did Dolly have a learning disability? Was Dolly uh, schizophrenic? Was Dolly a manic depressive? We don't know because Dolly cannot have those phenotypes and appearances. And therefore, this animal model is not a very good model for these types of problems. And I can assure you, you cannot distinguish a retarded mouse from a normal mouse. They're all retarded. <laughs> Maybe Shirley's got some smart ones in her lab. I don't know. But so we have a problem there. And I would say that what that tells you is the very least you need to do before cloning human beings is at least try to clone a higher primate to get some idea of whether cognitive function development is normal, especially given our understanding from mice and sheep that late fetal and early postnatal developmental events may be compromised. Problems with cloning continue. Interspecies variability. And I left this up here. Mice cannot be cloned. But of course, I left that up because it's out of date. And indeed, that does point out that progress is rapid. And so someone in the question and answer period might say, well, sure, it's lousy now, but in a few months, well, it'll be fixed. And so I recognize that point. Rats cannot be cloned, hasn't really been tried by the mouse method yet. Humans, we don't know. And in this trial and error process of trying to clone our first human, if we should try to do that, there's only one endpoint for success. There's only one measurement stick, a person walking around. A late fetus isn't good enough. And that is a very, very tough, uh, a tough uh, measuring stick to meet. If it doesn't work, what conditions should we change to try again? Should we change anything or just try out more? It's a very complicated and very daunting problem. Now let's take a look at the medical ethics of cloning. I submit to you that we don't have to worry about whether cloning violates the will of God because we have other problems that are obvious. Whether, whether something is the will of God or not, as I once said in another lecture, is that uh, somebody threatened me. I was arguing with her about animal rights, and she said, God is going to punish you for your ideas. And I said, I really thank you for saying that, because now I don't have to wait for the second coming to find out what God thinks. And indeed, those are issues that are up to opinion, right? But we can be on much more solid footing if we look at medical ethics. So when we extend medicine to patients, what do we want to offer them? A procedure that must be reasonably efficient. So if we look at heart bypass surgery, and I say to you, it works great when it works but we're unable to complete the procedure in 999 out of 1,000 patients because their veins aren't good enough or their chest falls apart when we're working on them. I can't offer you that procedure because although it works, its efficiency is too low to be ethically acceptable, especially if you have a 20% chance of getting better if I give you a pill. Cost. Neither the healthcare system nor the patient can be overburdened, and I submit to you that this is a very serious issue nowadays especially. How expensive will it be? beta clone as opposed to other choices. Efficacy, the procedure must effectively address a medical problem. Let's make an assumption just in our stuff that no one's going to clone just for a reason. That we're going to want to do it for a reason. And I think if we go through the process a little bit clinically, we'll see why there has to be a reason. Even though Richard Seed, the Chicago whatever physicist, I think, uh, said he wanted to do it for fun. But I don't think it's a lot of fun for a lot of people, as you'll find out. And safety, a reasonable estimate of safety must be possible. And we must be able to be, communicate that to the patient. And that harkens back to the notion of, I never knew what it would be like to lose a pregnancy till I lost it. Cloning is a treatment for infertility of one partner. It's been proposed 
If the husband and wife is infertile, let's clone the other partner and solve the problem. Let's take a look at the efficiency. Prohibitively low, if more than 100 embryos must be re replaced to achieve one pregnancy, because transfer of three embryos in one cycle is not advisable. Now let's assume we're doing this as well as in mice, and we have a 2% live birth rate, or what we think is a normal amount. That would mean that to get a normal human, we have to put back 50 embryos. If we have to put back 50 embryos, and we can't put back more than three embryos at any one time because of the risk of a multiple pregnancy, some of which might be lost in the third trimester, could kill the mother or kill the normal baby, kill the normal pregnancy, the normal rules, we don't put back more than three. So let's take a look at the woman who wants to become a mother. We put back three embryos in her 16 times, and we have 48 embryos back. If we need to do that, though, what are we going to do with embryos number 14, 15, and 16? Are we waiting to see what happens to embryos number 5, 6, and 7? We have to freeze them. If we have to freeze them, we're going to have a loss rate. And if we don't want to freeze them, which we almost certainly would not do, because it will take this woman years to conceive that at that Suppose, for example, embryos one, two, and three. She goes to the third trimester and aborts. She has a newborn and a job, all of the mouse. She's not going to have to wait six months before she takes another embryo transfer. Because during the process of getting pregnant, she became anemic. She had all kinds of other hemodynamic changes. And in the standard practice of obstetrics in the United States, if a woman has a baby, she's has to wait six months before conceiving again. Well, if a woman waits six months and has to do this 16 times, it's prohibited. So what are we going to do? We're going to have to get some embryo donors, right? And we're going to have to get some surrogate mothers to carry these babies, excuse me. And so if this type of efficiency is what we've got, we're going to be facing the issue of surrogate motherhood, a la 15 of those, in addition to the woman herself who may carry three or four. So efficiency has to be better than that. Anyway, cloning the cost. And let me just digress on that issue. We have to get eggs from somewhere to clone. If we need 50 eggs to clone one baby, we're going to have to get women to donate eggs for us. In donor egg programs, women will do that at about $5,000 per donor. And uh, we're going to need 10 women for that. If we get five eggs from each woman, if we want 50 eggs to make sure we get one baby, that's $50,000. If we biopsy cell culture, do the lab work, we all want to write our NIH grant budgets, put more than 10000 on that, but let's be conservative and say that's $10,000. Now we have to have 15 surrogate mothers to carry these embryos. Well, let's say they charge us $20,000 a piece. I think ABM should charge $10,000. We have inflation. Time's gone by. And this is a much higher risk pregnancy than the ABM pregnancy. Don't forget, we have to tell these surrogate mothers, you could have a 60% third trimester abortion, or you could have a 40% neonatal death rate. So they might demand a little more money. So let's say we give them 20000 Now we're looking at $300,000 for that. Management of complications. Somebody does have an abortion. Somebody needs a cesarean section. Somebody has a placenta previa and ruptures their membrane. Bleeds out. You're going to have to deal with that. We'll throw in a conservatively $50,000 for that. So cloning a child, $410,000. That's expensive, especially when you consider the alternatives. Cloning is a treatment for infertility of one partner. Efficacy, if efficiency is too low, efficacy is nil. However, if the efficiency improves, cloning could be an effective treatment for infertility, but one parent will bear no genetic relationship to the offspring. However, no foreign donor genes will be present. So 
Lee Silvers at this institution once remarked in a sort of debate with that, that it would be great to clone as opposed to getting a donor sperm or egg because you don't have to worry about the genes you're getting, you can clone yourself. And I would say to you that that argument is specious because as the Human Genome Project advances, what we're going to find is we're going to understand so much about those donor eggs and sperm that we're getting that we'll be able to improve our health status. We'll be able to choose a sperm that will reduce the risk of our baby's heart disease relative to our own. I'm convinced we can do that. I'm not convinced we can clone. So efficacy is nil if efficiency is too low. Now, safety. Safety is a risk to the embryo donor. She may have a complication when you're retrieving eggs. Safety risk of the recipient if a late pregnancy loss is, is increased. And the risk of the offspring, again, we don't know. Again, late developmental events have not been modeled in cloning in animals. Now, cloning is a treatment of infertility of one partner. The genetics of it should be kept in mind. If the woman is cloned, the man bears no genetic relationship to the child. And therefore, the genetic, it is the genetic equivalent to sperm donation from the point of view of the man. If the man is cloned, the woman bears no relation to the child. And from the point of view of the woman, this is open donation. Because she does not give in her genes. It's only the husband's. So it's not a lot different from gamete donation when you come right down to it. Sperm donation, let's compare that to cloning. Remember cloning, 2% success rate, 60% labor fuel loss rate, $410,000. Efficiency of sperm donation, 15% pregnancy rate per procedure. That's a lot higher than 2% for multiple procedures. The cost is about $500. $410,000. The efficacy, it treats infertility, but of course the father bears no genetic relation to the child. It's very safe. The reason it's only 15% effective now is because we have to freeze sperm or test them in and make sure you have another JV and things like that. And because we froze the sperm, the efficiency is lower than what it used to be. But let's take a look at ovum donation as a treatment for infertility. The other case, Efficiency, 50% pregnancy rate for embryo transfer at Mount Sinai, in a way, and across the country, about 40%. So now you're looking at something that's way above 2%. And all of these pregnancies are normal pregnancies. Costs about $15,000 per cycle, not $410,000. Efficacy treats infertility, but the mother bears no genetic relation to the offspring. And safety, the risk of ovum retrieval for the donor. In this case, you usually have one donor. And there's the risk of pregnancy to the recipient, which is much more low than the risk we presume of pregnancy after cloning. But there is a risk of being pregnant. Every, every mother who wants to conceive is ready to take that risk. Where would cloning in that setting be actually a reasonable thing to do? Here's a good case. If a child is terminally ill or in a persistent vegetative state, sit by a car, it's going to die. One parent could come to fertile after the child was born. And the parents will not tolerate foreign donor genes, but I suppose for religious reasons they can't accept donor eggs or sperm. And resources are available to do this, and that would mean that would possibly be a societal decision. You might that would be a setting where cloning might be reasonable. How about this? Sometimes when you do gene transfer, you can actually do gene replacement. I could take a factor eight deficiency in cell line and put in a normal factor eight gene. Rarely I can replace the defective one with a good one. Let's take the case of a couple with a child that has case axis and is dying. We could take his cell, do a gene transfer, and correct the genetic defect in one of the two defective case axes, use that cell line to clone a new child if one of the parents has become infertile in the interim, 
and if his parents are so religious, they wouldn't accept letters for his age. And then we could have another child who would only be a carrier if it takes that deficiency. Well, I emphasize another child. This would not be the same child. It would just be a way of having another child. It would look a lot like the first one. Now, clones are, are not identical. Here are four mice that are identical quadruplets genetically. And they carry a mutation that causes white spotting on their belly. Because the cells that they birth in are not normal. These mice are genetically identical in every possible way of measure. But they don't look identical. Because in development, there are random events that cannot control the data that ultimately determine how we're going to look and how certain organs are going to form. And you can see the spot is not the same in these mice. You can do everything you want to try to bring a uniform spot to these animals, and it never works. Now, this system is probably a fur pigment of a mouse. It's probably accounted for by fewer than 20 cells. We're talking about a simple system. Liver has two million clones. How about brain? If this type of noise is occurring in brain development, we clearly are not going to have genetically identical individuals be truly identical. This is going on internally as well. I'm only showing you the spotting because it's so easy to see. Here's an interesting case. Suppose I told you that identical twins were different because their environment was different. So let's take an identical twin and cut off their hand. And I present you with these two twins, and one has only one hand. And I say, you see, they're not identical. And you say, that's ridiculous. Of course they're identical. One is having an environmental insult that makes it look slightly different. Let's take another step. Let's take one of our two identical twins and give him a terribly disfiguring injury so he cannot be recognized at all. And I present these two twins to you, and I say, they're not identical twins. And you will say, you know, a lot of the features of identical twins are the customs, so you're right. But if you test them genetically, they're a trivial case. There's an environmental insult, which I submit to you would be socially much more significant with regard to our concept of clones and identical twins. Identical twins are genetic clones. Here's a case where the environmental insult was even more so. This is a case where the environmental uh, milieu of the genetic material was different. So these two identical twin girls were born from a single embryo which underwent a chromosomal change during development, followed by twins. And this identical twin had all of her cells made up of Down syndrome cells due to that mistake. Meanwhile, her identical twin sister had all normal cells. Now we have identical twins that are clearly, while well, we think of them as genetic clones and genetically identical, we can clearly see them. This, this young lady is unlikely to live to be the age of 40. She's unlikely to have normal intelligence. She is likely to have cardiac defects, esophageal defects. She's much more likely to get leukemia. She's certain to get Alzheimer's disease. She lives beyond the age of 30. This girl's going to lead a normal life. We have an environmental insult into the chromosomes, and that is created a dramatic difference in the way these two genetically identical individuals appear. So identical twins are not identical. And therefore, clones are not. Clones are less alike than identical twins because twins develop from the same egg, and clones develop from different eggs. Remember those ten donor women? Twins develop in the same uterus. Clones develop in different uterines, probably. Remember all those surrogate mothers? And those uterine environments may be different. 
For example, let's say we do 10 surrogate, 15 surrogate mothers for cloning, and one of them smokes. We tell her not to smoke, but she smokes. One of them drinks, we tell her not to drink. One of them does not eat her vegetables, and we should tell her that. That could be a great difference in those fetuses, one mother to another, whereas identical twins develop in the same uterus. Twins develop under the same external environmental influences, clones under different ones. So one of our current mothers decides to live out the rest of her life in the Alps at uh, 12,000 feet. That can, have a bit, that can affect the development of her fetus. Twins are of the same age and clones almost always are not. So if I clone myself three now, then if the offspring would be much younger than me. How does that make it so different for me? Let's take a look at psychological Here's a good we clone somebody who survived Auschwitz. There's an Auschwitz inmate and got through it, thank God. We cloned him or her. That person has lived through Auschwitz. That clone can only read about it. And I tell you that the psychological development of those two people can't possibly be remotely the same. So clones have dramatic differences potentially relating to differences in age and differences in experience. So we don't have to worry about five Michael Jordans taking the basketball court. We have to worry about five Michael Jordans, three of whom want to play baseball, one of whom wants to be a cello player, and the fifth wishes to be a clarinet player, and uh, well, maybe a poet thrown in there. Now, they may be all very good at that, but I don't think we would really expect to revolutionize basketball. Should cloning be illegal? Problems with that. Enforcement is onerous and intrusive. So if cloning is not likely to go on, because nobody can get malpractice insurance to do it in the United States, but you pass a law against it, I submit to you that you owe it to the people who, on whose behalf the legislation is passed to ensure that you're doing something to enforce the law. So what are we going to do? Are we going to obtain warrants to go into the digital fertilization clinics and make sure that what's going on in that manipulation equipment is simply things that are acceptable, like sperm injection, uh, embryo biopsy, and not cloning? That can be intrusive to patients. And the enforcement apparatus can be expensive and not worth the cost, considering the frequency with which this is likely to go on. Legal bans could encourage secrecy. And that could be a problem if a clone was produced that had a health problem, and the scientific and medical community can never be informed of the relationship between the procedure and the problem. Could be bad for the child, too, if the treatment of the problem was related somehow to that knowledge. Cloners can go outside the jurisdiction. If we make cloning illegal in one place, people can go to another place. And I can assure you that there are places in the world where you can do anything you want in reproductive medicine. Singapore is a very major example. Natural controls already exist in the US. And I would say that the big key there is things like malpractice insurance. And I would say that if it was me, how to take a position on cloning in humans now, which in my opinion is unacceptable medically for the reasons I've described, I would say that authoritative bodies in the United States should be encouraged to take the position that cloning is not a state of medical sophistication where it should ever be offered to a human being at this time. And that will give human beings uh, who are cloned uh, unsuccessfully, or partially successfully, which is even worse, um, a sort of risk for complaining to the physician when these major problems arise. And I think this will make a, st a strong impediment to cloning inside our own borders. There's nothing we can do about it because outside our own borders. Inhibition of research. This is a really potentially serious problem. Remember those cell lines. I want to see that work done. We should all want to see that work done. But if you don't craft anti-cloning legislation carefully, 
you could inhibit that type of work. You could greatly set back our understanding of developmental biology and greatly set back the progress of biomedical science. So if any type of legislation gets formed to do that, great care must be looked at in the language of this legislation to make sure that research that we all want to see continue is not inhibited. I would close with the secrecy issue. Suppose someone in this room closed themselves and they're walking around with this two-year-old and wish to keep it a secret. How would you know that that person really belonged to that family? Well, that's me when I was two. And I think I could get away with it. That's what I said to you. Uh, I, I, you might ask, what happened to this guy? He's a pretty good-looking kid. And now he's a big mess. Well, that's true. But, you know, let's face it, I don't look much like I did then, and people want to keep it a secret, they can keep it a secret. Now, can I have the lights for one second? I want to make one statement of philosophy here right after this. I'm not saying anything about philosophy yet, actually. And that relates to dealing with advances in scientific technology by trying to curtail them through the force of legislation or the force of intimidation, as we've done in the case of Galileo, let's say. And there's, there's always been a consistent trend throughout Western society try to inhibit human free inquiry because of the fear that the consequences of what will be, will be found or discovered is going to destabilize society. They rock the boat, as it were. So I'm sure they were concerned about in the case of Galileo. This is nothing new, and it extends to many 20th century procedures, including transgenic research still, and cloning research, of course, we can imagine. Uh, also being done that way, being treated that way by philosophers and people who might call themselves ethicists. And I'm not saying all ethicists would be like that, but anybody might do that. And let me tell you where I think the mistake is in that reason. There are two mistakes. First of all, the desire to learn and discover is just as innately human as any of the other innate human traits that we all understand and accept, like the desire to have children. The desire, the desire to be fulfilled intellectually. The, the desire to be curious and to satisfy our curiosity is irrepressible, and it's not going to stop. If you don't believe me, just take a look back in history. Take a look at the Manhattan Project. I was the bond over test. Go ahead and read it. There's no way they could stop. Because they couldn't stop themselves. And we're never going to stop people from studying the world around them, and especially things like human development, which is by far the most complex process ever seen in the past. And what are we doing when we say, let's not hurt ourselves with new technology? And the way we'll avoid it is by inhibiting research. When I say this, that is a big problem. It's, a, it's an act of power. Because what these people are doing is saying, sure, I'll settle for a rotten society. As long as the tools that you have for being rotten are not so good that you can destroy the whole world. So, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Sophie's Choice. In the, the climactic scene of this film, a woman in a concentration camp is asked to choose between which of her two children will be gassed to death. And if she doesn't make a choice, they'll both be gassed to death. So she chooses one child to be killed. <coughs> and ultimately, she kills herself because she can't live with this burden that she's done this. Now, I submit to you that society is doing things like that. It's already there. It doesn't make any difference to me that it persists. And if we don't have the courage to develop something and to work specifically on a social and political development to the point where we won't pursue these technologies, then inhibiting the technologies is a fruitless activity and it's an act of cowardice. 
So you don't have the guts and you don't have the resources to really do something good. Most of us live under the assumption that we're advancing socially. So why don't we have the courage to go ahead and make social advances? Why don't we focus our attention on it? Instead of trying to take away what those uh, gains there looks like are the toys of misbehavior. Because those toys are going to come. So if I could close with that little homily of my own personal views, I wouldn't reflect any scientific facts, I would say don't try to curtail too much this research and don't try to curtail the benefits of uh, this activity, especially in animals, but don't treat humans like animals. Let's not start calling people or even talk about that until we solve all the other problems and then we can have a discussion about whether we should ever be done in humans. So I think I'll stop there and if there's any questions, I'll take it. Thanks. That's fine with me. I'll take questions myself if there are any. question was, in case he doesn't have a microphone, how did I find out that Dolly was cloned? <clears throat> I found out because the New York Times gets its copy of Nature a week before me, and they called me and said, um, what do you think about that? That's basically how I found it, only about a week ahead of everybody else. And my comment was to them was the same as it always is. I haven't seen the paper, so what can I say? You know? uh, so no, I didn't have any advanced knowledge. But often discoveries like this will be known to a few people because they'll be discussed at a, a closed scientific meeting, or not closed, but just not that freely accessible scientific meeting, and they may know a few weeks ahead of time. I knew about the mouse cloning about two months before it was published. You, you say ethically and morally, it's you know we shouldn't uh, clone humans, but I mean, how do you know somewhere out there, like President Shapiro doesn't have a crazy scientist in a basement somewhere, and you know, again, you're gonna pick up uh, the New York Times and find out that against everything ethically and morally, somebody tried it or or did it, whether they succeeded or not. Well, let me say that. I'd hesitate to use the word morally because that borders on the more philosophical end of that. But let's take a look at ethically. I think it is medically unethical for the reasons I've described. What are you going to do to stop people from doing medically unethical things? All you can do is make it in less in their interest to do it than to not do it. And I think in this country, uh, there are sort of natural controls on that in the sense that I assure you that if Richard C. Uh, seeks uh, malpractice insurance to cover that procedure, he'll never get covered. And I assure you if he's sued, he'll have to pay. Um, however, there are unethical things that I regard as un medically unethical going on in human reproductive medicine outside the borders of the United States, and they may go on in secret. There's nothing you can really do about it. I do want to alert you all to one thing, that I do believe that if you go to the grocery store enough and read enough tabloids, somebody will say they've been cloned much longer before it's actually been done. And um, what they'll say is that the baby wishes to remain anonymous and, you know, the parents don't want their blood drawn or they draw the parents' blood twice and you never get to meet the family. But people will believe it. So I think that there'll be a general feeling amongst the public that it's been done long before it's actually been done. <clears throat> Um, one of the one of the pluses for cloning that you always hear about is something that you mentioned, where you can have transplantation or maybe a, a cell lineage, as in the cases you described. Um, I was a little bit surprised to hear you talking about transplantation in terms of simply cellular transplantation. I think I had heard 
probably erroneously that um, one of the possible considerations would be to do an organ transplant, say, for someone who needs a kidney or liver. But I, I couldn't personally figure out how that would be possible without getting into a really serious ethical crisis. So did I hear wrong, or is it is the scientific community indeed going in that direction, or is it just sticking to cellular transplantation? Well, I don't know whether you were wrong or not. I think you're, you're, if we produce a fetus by cloning only then to cut it up for parts, I, I think we're off, obviously treading on ethically unacceptable ground. And even morally, I could even say that. In terms of trying to produce organs in vitro from cell lines, I would say that by far the bulk of the research is to look at the cell line area because once you get into producing large masses of tissue in tissue culture, problems are created that are technical, but they're very daunting. The most significant is getting enough oxygen to cells that are in the interior of a large organ mass. So I would say that people are looking mostly at cell transplantation. Of course, direct gene insertion into adult tissues is something which is actively going on and only in its, only in its early stages of development, but also has potential. Um, not a question, just a comment. You um, say that um, there's this innate desire for human beings want to know to do research, and you cannot stop it. But that is uh, historically, it's really a relatively re very recent thing. We lived for thousands of years without knowing anything, and we remain so for not knowing anything. We had no desire. This uh, research and the pursuit of science is in historical scale is very recent. But now, having said that, I do not really disagree with you. It is possible that mankind, its mentality, has this one-way progress, namely, once you open the Pandora's box, we'll just keep on opening more. Well, I don't know if I need to respond to a comment, except to say that one, one thing I've always mused about is I thought some of the best scientists ever were prehistoric humans because they were willing to do experiments and record their findings. I mean, most animals are afraid of fire, but you know, humans managed to, through experiments and testing, uh, get over that and utilize it. I'm not sure I know what you mean by recently. Certainly there are scientists who have been persecuted throughout many centuries for uh, persistently uh, seeking uh, various truths. And I guess uh, it just depends on what you mean by recently. But I think if you look carefully at the history of Western culture, and I only say Western because I'm ignorant of Eastern, not because I think it's remiss in its <laughs> human curiosity or anything. Um, I think you find that human curiosity is irrepressible. It's an innate part of being human. It's what made us survive, in case anybody ever tells you, oh, the tiger is stronger and the bird flies and all that kind of thing that you always hear about you know, other species being physically more capable than humans. And I would say that may be true, but humans do have this feature of their intellectual function and uh, their ability to pass knowledge on without direct experience, which is a tremendous uh, evolutionary advance. And humans do things physically that even a chimp might uh, envy, you know. After all, to ask a chimp to play a Beethoven sonata sometime on the piano, that's a physical function. So uh, I think it's an innate human function. You said that um, uh, transmutation was easier when done with cloned cells than with uh, an, an embryo cell, and I was just curious why. Um, 
I'm not sure I understand that question. If you do nuclear transfer from embryos that have already implanted into the uterus, um, some of those cells can be used as nuclear donors back to the fertilized egg with about the same efficiency as some adult cells, but not with greater efficiency. And some embryo cells are not effective at all. If you're saying developing a clonal cell line for use in transplantation is better using adults than embryo cells, I don't think there's then a lot of evidence that bears on that one way or the other. I was thinking more uh, uh, in terms of Dolly. You said that the, one of the reasons that they made the clone was so that they could, uh, that if, if they were making sheep as clones, it would be easier to insert the insulin gene uh, into, into it so that it, it would be produced in the milk. Right. Um, how, why would it be easier to do that with a clone than rather okay. than with an embryo? Okay. Well, direct embryo injection works. And there have been sheep made by the transgenic technique of pronuclear injection that I had a diagram of. But the efficiency of gene insertion is low in those larger animals because it's technically hard to inject the embryo. And because the frequency of gene insertion seems to be a little lower in larger animals than in mice. And then you have a third problem. You can inject a gene into a mouse embryo or a sheep embryo, get it in there, have the animal grow up, and then the gene will not be expressed very well because just by chance it went to a bad location in the genome. If you take cells out of an adult and put, them, and put genes into those cells, you can select for the cell lines that express at very good levels. And then 100% of the cells you're looking at have the gene because every time the cell replicates, it replicates the new gene. And when you use that pure culture of cells as a donor for cloning, then every animal that's brought to term will have the new gene in a potentially highly expressible state. The problem with cloning inefficiency is how many of those animals come to term? I mean, at the moment, it's very low. And so right now, it's not an advantage over microinjection. But if, if you could really make it work efficiently, it would get around the inefficiencies in microinjection. In microinjection, there are no obvious ways to get around the inefficiency. Um, do you have any way of reliably estimating how long it could be before a viable clone could be created? Uh, you gave the example of creating factorate for a hemophiliac. You mean creating a human clone? Uh, no, like a sheep clone, which could create the... Oh, I don't think we're very far from that at all. I think we may be looking at a couple of years. I mean, I think it's been claimed that there are already sheep carrying human factor 9 that are produced by cloning. So we're very close to realizing that technology. Whether it takes everything over, is another thing. Now, let me just say one last thing of information about the value of cloning in agriculture that I neglected to mention. Let us suppose a breeder is trying to produce a milk cow that produces a great amount of their high quality milk and turns out to be tremendously successful in one particular breeding step. That cow, if it's bred again, a lot of those valuable traits will be dispersed by breeding to a mate because they'll be mixed with the genes of a mate. But if that cow was cloned, you could make many copies of that same valuable gene package for further breeding. Cloning will never replace selective breeding because when cloning is done, progress stops. You can't make the next offspring any better than the one you began with. So selective breeding will always go on. But if you are particularly lucky in a stage of selective breeding, cloning can enhance your animal husbandry strategy. I almost uh, don't want to hear what I fear will be your answer to this, but uh, is it not true that human cloning would uh, make men obsolete? Would make human cloning make men obsolete? I guess reproductively it might make men obsolete. I try to think of my contributions as 
extending beyond uh, my ability to have children. Um, but true, yeah, that's true. In theory, you could uh, you could make men obsolete, and you could devise strategies for making women obsolete as well. And uh, something tells me that in a world where one of the sexes is so obsolete that it disappeared, we've had some really serious problems, which uh, I don't think we'd want to quite live in that world. I'm not too worried about it. In terms of, I, I don't have a problem with the research being done. In fact, I think it's great. Um, I guess I, I'm a little more skeptical about how fast humans can psychologically, especially as a whole culture, can, can assimilate and adapt to this much technology happening this quickly. I mean, already there's, there's lots of problems. Is there any way to slow down, not necessarily slow down all of the research, <laughs> but not stop it, not prohibit it, but is there any way to kind of put checks and balances on it so we don't grow out of control? Well, you know, boy, <laughs> that's a pretty big subject. I think a very nice subject for a PhD thesis in the media arts would be the portrayal of the scientist in the media historically. And um, actually, the first doctor I ever saw in the media in the movie was Dr. Frankenstein. I think Dr. Jekyll came after that. And you know, there's always been the concern that scientific progress is going beyond uh, the the ability of society to keep up. And it's contributed to by hubris of scientists and their lack of uh, concern for the whole picture, quote unquote. And there's really nothing new about that. Now, we happen to live in an age where progress is extremely rapid. But I just want to tell you that in the biological sciences, you're just looking at one aspect of this. I lived in an era when, I don't know if you were alive then, but in the Cuban Missile Crisis, we were looking down the barrel of a gun because of a technology that was developed. And the question is, were we really ready to handle it? I didn't happen to think so that week when the bombers were flying over my house 24 hours a day, ready, ready to send, be sent to the Soviet Union to blow the world up. So it's not the only technology. And I don't think there's much way to slow down technology. By the way, I think there's a lot of paradoxical, I would say that rather than hypocritical, attitudes on the part of the public towards scientific enterprise. In the first place, many of them are afraid of it and they developed, expressed concerns such as you have, but at the same time, they're quite accustomed to benefiting from it and expect a lot from it. So if you take, for example, the fact that um, you now can drink freshly squeezed juice in your refrigerator and a few years ago you couldn't, well, that's science. And you have an instant camera and you have a scanning digital camera. Um, and I would say the ACT UP movement in the HIV, history of HIV was a very interesting movement in that regard because what it did was it showed that people were expecting scientists to solve this problem. They're saying, well, what are you doing? I mean, you know, uh, you guys get out there and cure it, for God's sakes. We're used to you doing that sort of thing. So I think there is sort of a paradoxical attitude towards the scientific enterprise. And again, I think the best way to handle this is to not try to do anything with the scientific activity itself, which is very difficult to manage because you wouldn't even know where to begin. You wouldn't want to do more harm than good, but rather to look at the reverberations through society and say to yourself, is there a way we can look at what the consequences of this would be and help the world be prepared for it? And I think uh, reading the history of, let's say, the hydrogen bomb is a very interesting one there, where Oppenheimer, who made the atomic bomb, didn't want to make the hydrogen bomb. He said, look, the atomic bomb is enough and uh, we've got to know, we've got to figure out some way to stop this is what he was basically saying. Well, he lost his security clearance and was called a subversive, and the next thing he did, we had the hydrogen bomb. Okay, I think uh, perhaps we should uh, thank Dr. Gordon for a particularly uh, insightful, sharply focused, and uh, thought-provoking talk. Thanks very much. <laughs>